Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Bunch going on that, you know, you all need to know about. Michael Linden wrote a fascinating piece for The Guardian titled, What Could the U.S. Afford If It Raised Billionaires' Taxes? Now, this, of course, is what both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are proposing aggressively. Now, keep in mind, the average tax rate right now for wealthy people is around 30 percent. The top marginal rate. They pay nothing on the first these numbers are imaginary numbers, but they're for, like, for example, because I don't have the tax tables in front of me. But basically, if you're earning a million dollars a year, you pay no tax on your first five or ten thousand dollars. And then you pay, you know, 10 percent on the, uh, you know, up to 15 or 18,000. And then you pay 12. You know, it's a graduated tax, right? It's a progressive tax. So when you finally hit five hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars a year, then you're at 30 percent. That's the top rate. And only your income over that rate gets taxed at that rate. So if we were to raise that 30% top rate by 10%, so it's still below 50%, it's still below the 74% that it was at when Reagan came into office, it's still below the 91% rate that it was at through the administrations of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower and John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon and uh, Jerry Ford and Jimmy Carter. So it was 91% throughout all that time, and that was the time of the greatest growth of the middle class in the history of America. But it's not even to that. If we just raise it 10 percentage points from 30 to 40%, that would be enough to make college free at all public universities, to make a massive investment in infrastructure along the lines of what the Senate Democrats have proposed, and to triple the budget for the National Institutes of Health to develop new drugs and, and all kinds of cool stuff. Every one of those things, of course, would pay back the money that they cost in multiples because these are investments. These are not expenses. Say we raised it from uh, 30 to uh, 55 percent, a 25 percent increase. It's still not where it was in 1980 when Reagan came into office at 55 percent as a top marginal rate. Now, that's not what you uh, and I are going to pay. That's what people are going to pay if they make a million or two million or five million dollars a year just on that top part of their income, that would be enough to send every household in the United States, in the bottom 75% of households in America, an $8,500 check every year for 10 years. Talk about Andrew Yang. And then there's that wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren is proposing. You and I pay a wealth tax right now if you own a home. Even if you're renting, you're paying a wealth tax because your landlord is adding the cost of the tax to your rent. Every year, we all pay taxes, property taxes, on where we live. But like I said, even if you rent, you're paying it indirectly. That's a wealth tax. That property is wealth. And for most middle class people, their home is their greatest single chunk of wealth. It is for me. It is for most people. And yet, for billionaires and multimillionaires, their biggest chunk of wealth is their stock portfolio or their five mansions in other countries or whatever. And well, typically it's their bank account in the Caymans. And they're not paying anything on that. They're not paying a wealth tax. So if they just paid a 1% wealth tax, which is much lower than the property tax I pay, I think it's around five or 6%, but if they just pay a 1% wealth tax, that's more money than the federal government will spend over the next decade on foster care, school lunch, breakfast programs, the children's health insurance program, CHIP, food stamps, unemployment compensation, supplemental security income for the elderly, 
blind people and those with disabilities and all the tax credits for working families combined. And of course, Elizabeth Warren says that that can be the foundation of funding Medicare for all. So there's a lot we could do. This book by Michael Lewis, The Fifth Risk, is really thought-provoking. Now, I haven't read the entire book. I've only read parts of it. And in fact, we made it one of our book reports. You can see it on YouTube. I think it's just from the introduction, about a five-minute read. But the one logical leap that that I'm making that I don't think he made, and I'm not sure why, I don't know. In any case, the one logical leap is that I think that the Trump presidency is the logical culmination of the direction that we got set on by the Reagan presidency. And the Reagan presidency was the logical outcome of the decriminalization, the, the outright legalization, in fact, of political bribery in 76 and 78 in the Buckley and First National Bank decisions by the Supreme Court. And those two Supreme Court decisions, the second one being actually written by Lewis Powell in 1978, the First National Bank decision, that said that corporations can own politicians. And it's not called bribery anymore, it's called freedom of speech. The thing that led to that was the 1971 Powell memo, Lewis Powell writing this memo coming right out and saying that we need to take over. We, you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce and its friends, all the corporations that are parts of it, the billionaire funders and founders, we need to take over politics in the United States. We need to take over the education system in the United States. We need to take over the court system in the United States. We need to take over the universities. We need to buy media. We need to build a media presence. I mean, he just laid out basically what we are living right now which is conservative rule. And I used to debate what the word conservative means, but I'm not going to anymore. I mean, this is what you're seeing right now is what has been called conservative since the 70s. It's oligarchy and corporatism. Reagan got us started down this road, and Reagan, of course, was brought into the White House by a river of big money that flooded out of big corporations and rich people in 78 and 79 because of those two Supreme Court decisions, because they had legalized it. And then Reagan took his naps every day and just kind of put, yeah, I mean, he, it, Reagan was the first president to put an anti-labor guy in charge of the Department of Labor. He was the first president to put a guy who thought that schooling should not be compulsory and should not be funded by the government, Bill Bennett, in charge of the education department. He was the first guy to put, a, you know, James Watt in charge of interior, the guy who thought that we should sell off public lands. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And by the way, every Republican president since then, George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., and Donald Trump have all done the exact same thing. I think that Reagan set this pattern. Up next, Harry Truman, Franklin Roosevelt, and Ronald Reagan, and then we'll continue picking up your calls. Welcome back. I just want to share a few clips with you here. Uh, we'll, we'll start with Ronald Reagan. He's uh, in the mid-60s. I'm not sure the exact year, around 66, 67 thereabouts. Medicare was introduced into Congress. Medicare came about as part of the Great Society program of Lyndon Johnson, and uh, Medicare and Medicaid, actually. Reagan is speaking specifically about Medicare here, and he's calling it socialist, socialized medicine. And he says right up front, and by the way, this was true, <laughs> Robert Ball, the guy who wrote the Medicare bill, and Lyndon Johnson, the guy who pushed it through Congress and made it happen, both of them were pretty upfront about the fact that they hoped that someday, you know, this was going to be health care for older people, people over 65, but eventually it could reach everybody in America. And I can tell you, having been on Medicare myself now for three years, it is spectacular. Uh, you know, I went in for my annual physical yesterday. No copay, no deductible, not a penny. I didn't have to take a credit card out of my wallet. Nothing. It's incredible. But anyhow, this is Ronald Reagan talking about it. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. Congressman Ferrand introduced the Ferrand Bill. This was the idea that all people of Social Security age... And then he goes on and he says, you know, this is going to become socialism for everybody. And then he, he concludes his speech 
by about a four or five minute harangue about write your letters to your congressman. You know, we need to get thousands of letters saying we don't want Medicare. I mean, of course, this was the official position of the entire Republican Party. And this is how he wraps it up. Just before his colleagues in Congress and say, I have heard from my constituents and this is what they want. Write those letters now. Call your friends and tell them to write them. If you don't, this program, I promise you, will pass just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. Yep, and, and behind it, it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known it in this country. Until one day, as Norman Thomas said, we will awake to find that we have socialism. And if you don't do this, and if I don't do it, one of these days, you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Right. And so now we've had Medicare since the 60s. I mean, you know, we've had it for, what, almost 50 years, 40 years anyway. It doesn't seem like people are less free. In fact, I think the experience of a lot of people, and, and it's interesting the number of people over 65 who are starting their own businesses because they don't have to worry about health care. They don't have to worry about health insurance. I mean, it's one of the main things that prevents people from starting businesses, if you want to put it in a business context. And so, you know, it's just, there's that. Then there's Harry Truman. This is Harry Truman talking about the difference between Republicans and Democrats more generally. This was in 1948 he was saying this. And in 1947, the Republicans took control of the House of Representatives for a two-year period. There were two two-year periods, 1947-48, and then there was one period, I think it was in the 60s, that lasted two years, one Congress, basically. But outside of those two times, from 1933 all the way up to 1994, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives because everybody remembered that the Republicans had crashed the economy back in 1929. So anyhow, here's some clips from Harry Truman on this. People know the Democratic Party is the People's Party, and the Republican Party is the party of special interests, and it always has been and always will be. Yeah. And then he goes off on some very specific rants here. Time and again, I have recommended improvements in Social Security law. There we go. See, including the extending protection to those not now covered. Increase the amount of the benefits. Reduce the eligibility age of women from 65 to 60 years. Congress studied the matter for two years but couldn't find time to extend the increased benefits. But it did find time to take Social Security and benefits away from 750,000 people. And they passed that over my veto. There you go. Ever since its inception, that party has been under the control of special privilege, and they concretely proved it in the 80th Congress. I've repeatedly asked the Congress to pass a health program. He proposed a single-payer health care. suffers from lack of medical care. Medicare for all, That basically. situation can be remedied. Anytime the Congress wants to act upon it. Everybody knows that I recommended to the Congress a civil rights program. I did so because I believe it to be my duty under the Constitution. It's 1948. Some of the members of my own party disagree with me violently on this matter, but they stand up and do it openly. People can tell where they stand, but the Republicans all profess to be for these measures. But the 80th Congress didn't fail to act. They had enough men there to do it, and they could have had cloture. They didn't have to have a filibuster. There are enough people in that Congress that would vote for cloture. Some Harry Truman thoughts on these kinds of issues. You know, I think it's really interesting that we understand Franklin Roosevelt when he rolled out his second Bill of Rights, where he said, you know, it should be a right to health care, to education, to housing, to a good job. Just laid this stuff out, and by the way, the countries that took Franklin Roosevelt's model, um, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Germany, France, I mean, you know, Spain, Portugal, they took Franklin Roosevelt's model and put it into place. So here's FDR talking about what is freedom? Because you'll, you'll recall, you know, when you heard the Reagan clip, Reagan said, you know, someday we'll look back on when men were free. Well, this is a really important question. I mean, are you free if you're hungry and you literally can't get enough food? Yeah, are you free if you're unemployed and you and you have, you know, are you free if you're homeless? Are you free if you if you're sick and you can't get medical care? I don't think so. And Franklin Roosevelt didn't think so either. Here he is. True individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitous men are not free men. People who are hungry, people who are out of a job, 
are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. And that's very true, and they're also not free. So, and then this is uh, one last clip, and then I'll to go back to your calls. This is Franklin Roosevelt talking about how big money had seized the Republican Party and the U.S. government from the 1920s until 1932 and caused the great crash. And he took government back from big money, fought money, big money back. And it wasn't until the 1970s the big money started having big successes with the Supreme Court in 76 and 78 with the Buckley and First National Bank decisions saying that, you know, billionaires can own politicians. And now we've got a full-on oligarchy for the last 20 years. The only kind of legislation that gets passed by and large is legislation that is what rich people want. What average working people want doesn't, just doesn't, doesn't happen. And here's Franklin Roosevelt talking about how that was in the 20s. This is, uh, uh, I believe, from 1936. We have to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, sectionalism, war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. There you go. And that applause just goes on and on and on and on. And I mean, we'll, we'll cut it off here, but it's just like people get it, right? And they got it. They figured out that what Franklin Roosevelt was telling them was just absolutely what is. Diane in Tampa, Florida, listening on WMNF. Hey, Diane, what's up? India has a free lunch program so their children will go to school. So now India is becoming more educated, and, of course, it's supposed to be a third-world country. Right. Uh, there was an interesting program on taking food stamps away from people that were working, but they had to enter their hours, how many hours they were working each week to qualify. And, of course, these people don't have the Internet that I have, so they'd have to go to the library, wait in line, sign in, make sure they made their hours that week. And whatever company was doing that was making more money than it would have been if they just let the guy continue to get food stamps. And then he lost his job because he, he didn't qualify, and the food stamps, because he had a hard time, you know, getting to the library on time. So he lost both his food stamps and his job. Yeah. So we have a war on the poor, not a war on poverty. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, Donald Trump, just in time for Christmas, knocked 750,000 Americans off food stamps. And he has proposed an executive order that will probably go into effect right after the first of the year that will knock 3.2 or 3.8 million people off food stamps. So, uh, yeah, we are we're not moving forward. <laughs> we're not moving toward well, Franklin my Roosevelt's question is, How can India afford it and we can't? There you go. And by the way, it's not just India. I mean, we actually have millions. I think the number is around 10 million. Uh, people in the United States who go to bed hungry every night. And this does not include all the homeless people. That is literally not true of any other developed country in the world. Diane, thank you for the call. The first two of the Hidden History series of books, I'm going to write 10 of these things. The first two are out, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment and The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. These are small books. They're 190 pages, roughly, I think 197 pages. You know, a book you can read in a weekend. And the Supreme Court book has got this mind-boggling thing that I discovered that John Roberts wrote for Ronald Reagan. This was when John Roberts was just a lowly lawyer in the, in the Justice Department about how to blow up a Supreme Court decision, how Congress can do it. And it's like it had been lost to history. And I found this thing, and it's the last chapter of the book, and I think you'll find it absolutely amazing. Naked plug for my books, I guess, but the main point that I wanted to make isn't so much go out and buy my book, but rather, if you have read either of these two books, the Supreme Court book or the Guns book, please go over to Amazon and leave a review, whether you like it or not. You know, it's a, a good way for people to learn about the books. And of course, I, you know, I support local bookstores aggressively, but even local bookstores will look at the Amazon reviews to decide how many books to get. Tim in Fountain Hills, Arizona, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Tim, what's up? Hi, Tom. I was calling to bring up something that I brought up last week about what your thoughts are on 
the overall picture, and you went off onto the financial part of the USA, and now I'd like you to step back just a little bit, go up a little bit higher, and, and think about a list of things and what order you think they should be approached or what might be the most important thing to do first and all to get this country out of the James Madison conservative view that we've been under now since Reagan. Yeah, and, it's more uh, Hamilton than than Madison, but yes, I, I understand what okay, you're saying. Okay, um, very good. See, you, you know all this stuff that I never had the time to look into until I got retired, which I am now. I'm older than you are, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, so so you're asking like, where, yeah, I'm where sure do we I start? I think you have probably discussed this with others of our... Yeah. thinking pattern yeah. that you know in what order you would you would attack it and i figure the first thing is educating the public or communicating with them that the like you said with your last guest there the importance of of government and that it really is supposedly for we the people right the first three that, words of the constitution bingo that's yeah. exactly right mr tom and i'd i'd like to yeah. hear your you know to me it seems to me that the you know the conservatives of the founders day had more impact on our constitution than we would like them to have today and that mr jefferson who wrote about uh, each generation should be able to change the Constitution to suit itself for its own time and needs. Right. Uh, we're not doing, and uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about that in particular. Yeah, I, my concern, Tim, is that we have lost sight of what democracy actually is. You know, that I think most people in America don't understand the concept of the commons. They don't understand, you know, that there, there, there are these vast areas of life and of physical reality that surround us that, you know, I mean, literally the air we're breathing right now, the water that we drink. There are these vast areas that because we all own them collectively and because they impact our quality of life, we create governments, uh, as the Declaration of Independence said, you know, governments are created among men and women and others to be able to care for the common good and the general welfare, and that's the commons. And I think that that's probably the most important concept, is that the most important part of our commons, you know, to the extent to which the government can keep the air clean and the water pure, the most important part of the commons is our vote. It's the most critical thing, because that's how we, you and I, Tim, as citizens, express our desires. Joy in North Fork Valley, Colorado. Hey, Joy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Well, just to acknowledge 500 years of war on this part of the earth, on humans, critters, plants, the whole entire earth, never really acknowledged by the warring parties who have four or five hundred years been getting us more and more and more warred and including the war against sacred plants and all of that. And now we are so warred upon. Have you ever watched Star Trek? Uh, Um, Back in the day, yeah. Okay, well, the original. Well, in Next Generation, there's one of their species is called the Ferengi, F E R E N G I, mm-hmm. and they have big heads, little hands. They're lust and worship for money, but they screw up. They, they don't do it well, but that's what their religion is money mm-hmm. and other things as well. So you think uh, Trump so is think a Ferengi? Ferengi, F E R E N G I, yeah. Right. Well, well, you know, the, the, the whole Scientology thing is that 10,000 years ago, a people from the planet Xenu came and seeded the Earth, and then they said, We'll be back when everybody is clear, when everybody becomes enlightened. And they keep checking back, and we're not all enlightened, and that's why Scientology has to take all your money and help you become clear. And, right. And, uh, and that's a pretty substantial sized pseudo religion. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it a religion, but they call it a religion, and the IRS calls it a religion. So, and they're all over the place, and they've got, you know, aliens bringing humans to Earth. But that's a little right. different. You know, and, and, and yeah. then you got I people mean, like David Ikes, who says that uh, there's actually lizard people from deep under the Earth who, who mm-hmm. he said Bill Clinton was one. He slips in, he, you know, zips on his human suit every morning. The thing is, we don't really know, but I think what we have to do is open our minds to what 
has been absurd, but maybe is not so absurd. That And even just acknowledging who we really are and who we really come from, because we never have. People, I, I mean, you do, but, you know, most people, oh, yeah, oh, freedom and justice for all, you know, 200 years. No, we're 500 years. That's when, when this part of the earth was so radically changed and stolen by in, in so many ways, and it has never been acknowledged, certainly never been rectified, and I believe that it's time for us to really tell the truth about who we are, where yeah. we come from. Joy, I, and, and you're talking about, you know, basically we've been at war against nature and yeah. against each other all this time, and I completely agree yeah. with you, and, and you know, I don't think that Donald Trump is an alien, but I, yeah. you know, or, or anybody else running around loose is, but I do think that it is a great metaphorical way of describing, you know, I, I metaphorically say or jokingly say Donald Trump is a lizard person. In a heartbeat. I, I would go along with that one, too. Okay, cool. Uh, we have been invaded in so many ways, and I think we really need to start talking about it. But just today I heard there are billions and billions and billions of galaxies just in, in a tiny little pinhole of what... Oh, the, the numbers are staggering. To think that there's not life beyond, beyond the and Earth is, is, is naive, in my opinion. Intelligent life, including intelligent life. But then keep in mind, this planet's been here 5 billion years, and we've had intelligent life on it for you know what we call intelligent life for about 300,000 years at the most. So that's like one second in a year. So the odds of our intelligent life on this planet coinciding in that little few hundred year window when we're technologically, not just intelligent, but technologically competent, that few hundred year window coinciding with some other planet, those odds are pretty slim. But on the other hand, you know, the, the idea that there's life out there in the universe that has actually mastered interstellar space, I'm down with that totally, completely. Joy, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you, and I love flying saucer conversations. Jonathan in Seattle. Hey, Jonathan, speaking of aliens, you want to talk about Jim Jordan? Hello, Thomas. Yes, I would love to talk about Jim Jordan, but before I do, I love the Ferengi reference, but Quark, Nam, and Rog would be incredibly upset. Donald Trump is not Ferengi. He is a Borg. He is part of the uh, unobjective commune led by the Borg Queen. But anyway, there you go. Okay. What, I, what I'd like to bring up, I, I unfortunately drive for a living, and so I did listen to the entirety of the impeachment hearings yesterday, mm -hmm. and, and I have an understanding of elected representation being we the people elect representatives to go and be our voice in Washington. They don't do what they want or they think is best. They do what we tell them to do, regardless of their feelings. That's the theory. That? Yeah, that's <laughs> the theory. And, okay. and, and then by, by and large, that's the theory that was practiced until 1981. Right, exactly. And now, even if what the majority of we the people desire, even if that is unsavory, if we say it's to be and it's not a human rights violation, that is what the Well, even if it is a human be. rights violation, we had slavery in this country for 100 years. Yeah, very true. Very true. The majority speaks. And now, so so Jim Jordan made a Twitter post of this very thing he's saying that I'm referencing. So I, I implore you to go watch it on his own Twitter. He okay. says the elected president is the one that makes the laws for the unelected, not the other way around. We get elected to come to Washington, D.C. to set the laws and set the standards for those that are unelected. And that hit me like that's where this arrogance and this this ideological. So he thinks he's been elected a king or a lord. Absolutely. He thinks it is his duty to protect that person who has been declared the leader that, you know, it is not Trump, we yeah. the people. Yes, it is not we the people that Jim Jordan works for. It is the elected king and Donald Trump. And that's why him and Nunes and Gohmert fight like he is our king. And they need to be reminded, Tom, that the government works for we the people. And it is not how he says it is. He is our elected representative. Well, and hopefully they'll be reminded the of that, around. although the Supreme Court has said that that's not the case. I mean, that's that's the problem with these Supreme Court decisions in 76 and 78 and, and 2010 and 2013 and last year, for that matter, with the uh, McDonald case. And hopefully that will be the lesson that they learn at election time. And, and that's why we have to get active. Jonathan, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Lee in Sepulveda, California. Hey, Lee, what's up? Uh, what's up is, as a Republican, I'm offended that you call Lindsey Graham and that ilk Pence 
conservative Republicans. They are not conservative Republicans. They are what one caller called in instead of the GOP. It's greedy, opportunist panderers. Hmm. We, real Republicans, know where to put our money, and it's into our First Amendment, which especially is free speech radio and free speech television. Hmm. And we need know that it needs to go to the needy. It's not just about investing money to make more money. Yeah. Now, there are ways to handle this that neither you nor Richard Wolff nor any of the progressives talking have a way of getting this, but we, the people, need to get make the distinction between real Republicans and these clowns, these awful people, this, the whole people in that impeachment hearing. It was horrible to listen to them and have them be labeled Republicans. They're not. Real Republicans know unequivocally and immediately which side of the Civil War we would have been on. We know where to put our money. We know it needs to go to the needy. We need to have that discussion across this nation. You're expressing the values of Dwight Eisenhower. My dad was an Eisenhower Republican. I have a lot of respect for Eisenhower Republicans. And apparently there's there's a few of them left. I'm not an Eisenhower Republican. I go back to that radical republicanism that ended slavery oh my that, goodness that's who we need that's yeah. what we, you we know there are people who made that happen and they are not acknowledged they are the ones who need to be brought forth in history there is a way well, they, to you know they only survived about 20 years you know that yeah. that movement i mean yeah. you know from yeah. from lincoln to the failure of reconstruction late 1870s i mean that was yeah that was it great okay thanks a lot. thanks a lot good Bye. to hear from you All right. dennis in bergenfield new jersey hey dennis what's up I'm a conservative here in New Jersey, uh, but I'm thinking about voting for Bernie Sanders. Um, could you explain, uh, you know, what's the difference between socialism and social democracy? Because, you know, I always hear conservatives telling me that he's a socialist and don't vote for him because we're going to turn into Venezuela or, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. There's as many definitions of socialism as there are countries. <laughs> so I think that trying to use these labels is not wise. Venezuela doesn't operate and hasn't for a long time in a way that is the kind of democracy that we would recognize here in the United States. Maduro is not a small-D Democrat in a big way, and what's-his-name before him wasn't either. Bernie is not going to turn the United States into Venezuela. If Bernie's going to turn the United States into anything, if there's another country that you want to look at and see what is Bernie's model, it would be Denmark. And in Denmark, people live three years longer than they do in the United States on average. In Denmark, the middle class is huge, and they have very little poverty and almost no homelessness. They have the happiest index. Yeah, they're they're the happiest people in the world. Everybody has health care, period, of all kinds, you know, dental, eye, everything. Everybody has free college. In fact, they give you a $200 a month stipend to go to college. They buy all your books. Yes, people do pay a high rate of taxes. They pay, uh, the average person is paying around 45% taxes. Rich people are paying much higher taxes than that. But Donald's starting wage, the minimum wage for McDonald's in, in Denmark is $18.50 an hour, as I recall. Average wages are in the $20 to $30 an hour range for the kind of jobs that here in the United States would pay $7 an hour. So, you know, typically as taxes go up on, on working class people, so do wages because it's all about take-home pay, you know. Where do you draw the lines? Communist socialism, the kind of Soviet socialism, the government actually owns all the businesses. Nobody is suggesting that. Although in Venezuela, the government owns about a third of the businesses. Nobody is suggesting the government should own even one business, right? Even Bernie's health care plan is basically a single payer plan, but the government doesn't own the hospitals like they do in England. That's socialized medicine. He's not even proposing that. Tom in Minneapolis. Hey, Tom, thanks for listening to AM 950. What's up? I want to talk about messaging. Mm -hmm. Um, That guy that uh, called in and said he asked you for some advice on, hey, what do I do? What's the difference between socialism and democratic socialism? And then you answered, well, where Bernie wants to take us is to Denmark. No, his actual question was that, uh, does Bernie want to turn us into Venezuela? So that's what I'm hearing. And so he was looking for a model or a metaphor. And if I had said to him, Bernie just wants to fulfill FDR's dream, he would not have had any idea what I was talking about. The guy's a conservative. So he's saying, where in the world does it look like what Bernie wants to do? And Bernie himself has said that Denmark is his model. So I said, look at Denmark. And he was like, oh, Denmark has the happiest people in the world. So I thought it was pretty good communication. 
But what I'm trying to say is it's too easy for the GOP to attack European leftism. We want them to attack FDR, New Deal. FDR was ranked next to Washington and Lincoln, still is. The greatest generation voted for him for four times. We want GOP to attack American traditions. Mm-hmm. If we can say, no, we just want to return back to FDR, America, New Deal, which Europe copied. And you did say that, right? Yeah. And uh, and even the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights was written almost driven by Eleanor Roosevelt. That's correct. I mean, we must Americanize the message. We can't keep talking about Europe. Amer- Americans don't want to be Europe. So we have to convince them, no, this is an American value. Europe copied America. Yeah. And, and uh, in fact, Harry Truman was the guy who lobbied Germany to require unionization. And any company that has over a thousand employees, that half of their board of directors is made up of union members, among and other things. Just with the media, the media, if, if the Democrats were just to say, no, we want to return and reclaim our American roots, FDR, liberalism. Yeah. Let them attack FDR. It'll, they don't want to do that. The Republicans do not want to do that. I understand what you're saying, Tom. I just think that for most undecided, you know, FDR has been dead longer than you or I have been alive. And I love Social Security. They they love Social Security. We want to educate them that where did Social Security come from? Not Europe. It came from America. Right. And that's true. Most of the progressive or democratic socialist policies in Europe. Well, no, you got it. I know you get it. But the only way we can teach the Democrats is they have to Americanize the message, man. Yeah. You know, that's that's all. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you. And I, and I do, you know, it's one of the reasons I play FDR clips on this show all the time is because they just literally don't appear anywhere else. You could watch, you know, cable TV for years and never see an FDR clip. And many Americans are just ignorant of their history. It's why I'm writing this series of 10 books on history, this 10 small books on history. Point well made. Thank you for the call. Rita in Chicago. Hey, Rita, what's on your mind today? I recently watched uh, a few weeks ago that um, Rick Steves uh, special on PBS called Rise of Fascism in Europe. I believe it was probably like a year old or so. Mm-hmm. The date I found out was 2018, not 2019. I think I saw it over Thanksgiving. Did you see it on time. TV or did you watch it on the internet? Yeah, on, on TV, on their, one of their pledge drive things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Rise of Fascism in Europe by Rick Steves. Oh, yeah. my God. The similarities to what's happening here today, talking about how Hitler's secret weapon was propaganda. Well, back then it would have been, what, newsprint and flyers and yep. microphones. And radio. Today, what, oh, in radio today, social media. But what got me was seeing the footage from back then of the huge crowds cheering Hitler where he's out in front of whatever building, thousands of people with his, he's got his populism, nationalism message. Mm-hmm. They're just cheering, not always knowing what they're probably even cheering for. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, if you took that film footage from then, superimpose some red MAGA hats, it would look just like one of Trump rallies, because I'm convinced that half the people at those rallies don't know what they're cheering for, because they, they don't know they're voting against their best interests. So, oh, my God, it just it just really caught me when I watched. I watched the whole thing. I Even though I'm getting laid off at my job, I felt it was worth the $60 pledge to order the DVD wow. so I can try to educate some family and friends. But just kind of in closing, I just wanted to mention that my father um, was a POW in World War II. He was captured at the Battle of the Bulge. Mm. Never talked about it. It was so painful. But even he was a staunch Republican his whole life, whole life, he would turn over in his grave if he saw what is happening here, what he almost lost his life for, what's kind of happening again. Yeah. So that was my comment on that. And I don't know how we get people to see this, how, to see what's going on here. What do you think? Are they so wrapped up in their own little bubbles, so obsessed with watching reality TV, they don't even care? What do you think? What? How, how can they not see this? I am very, very concerned, Rita. And, uh, you know, I think many of us are that we are moving in that direction. And FDR warned us. The experience of Europe in the 30s warned us. The generation that lived through that is now, by and large, dead. We may have to learn our lesson all over again. We used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older. But all that has changed now thanks to this magic in a bottle, Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turned back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. 
Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to problem areas and within 10 minutes, voila, a new you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox involved. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 knowing Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger looking skin in minutes. And the best part is it goes on clear so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code Hartman. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code Hartman. Okay, we had a caller who invoked Dwight Eisenhower's speech before the American Society of Newspaper Editors. This was, I believe, April 16th, 1953, but I could be wrong. That is simply my recollection. But anyhow, here is the speech. Oh, here is one minute and four seconds of the speech. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. A theft, amazing. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. You get that one heavy bomber is a modern brick school in 30 cities. I mean, this is where he lays out the true cost of the military. And keep in mind, this guy not only was president of the United States, but he gave this speech. But just two years before that, or maybe five years before that, he was the supreme allied commander. He led the invasion in Normandy. He led, he led all, of the, all of the forces of all the allies against Hitler in World War II and won that war. He continues. It is. He's still talking about the cost of one heavy bomber. Two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. And that's why they call it the cross of iron speech. Humanity hanging from a cross of iron. What a brilliant man. And he was a Republican. He was the last legitimately elected Republican president. This is the guy that, that was my dad's hero. When I was a kid, he was my hero, too. I mean, you know, I. Of course, I grew up in my dad's house. Anyhow, on we go. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'd just like to correct something real quick. Most Americans are confused over. Okay. That's the cross of iron speech. That was the last speech he gave during his presidency, Eisenhower. But that was just a rehash of the chance for peace speech. And I, I believe that was the most important speech an American president gave. Because that was before he created the industrial military complex. And he was reaching out to the new leader of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And not many people realize that America kind of stabbed the Soviet Union in the back during World War II. We did not live up to our obligations. 
like we were supposed to under Roosevelt. And that's because Truman didn't know nothing about it, and he got railroaded by Churchill. But that's not what I'm talking about. When he first gave that speech, it was in a, to a room full of editors, and he was talking to the new leader of the Soviet Union, and he was telling them, let's not do this. Yeah, it was let's the American Society of Newspaper Editors in New York. Okay, and everybody calls it the Cross of Iron speech. That's yeah. not... That's not the cross of the cross of iron speech was the last speech that he gave. And it well, was, no, at the end of that speech, he says America is hanging on a cross of iron. That's, I understand. Yeah, but that's how he wraps cross it up. Of iron speech was if you listen to his first that speech and then you listen to his last address. Mm-hmm. If you see, it's just basically a rehash of that speech, but it's a little bit different. Yeah, his farewell address where he yeah, warned us of the military yeah. industrial complex, the one I played yesterday. No, I get it. Okay, somebody called a little bit ago and asked about the um, executive order that Donald Trump signed in October. And by the way, Larry the Cat has a Twitter page that is fun to look at. It's, uh, it says, Chief Mouser to the Cabinet Office. I'm a 12-year-old tabby and in position longer than the leader of any U.K. political party. Unofficial, not on Instagram. <laughs> Larry the Cat. Center for American Progress, uh, AmericanProgress.org, did a great analysis of Trump's plan to privatize Medicare. The essential core of it is that it's going to forbid Medicare from, in the future, pushing Medicare over Medicare Advantage. Anything that they do for Medicare, they also have to do for Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage, of course, is not Medicare. It's privatized insurance that was put into place, I think, around 2005 by George W. Bush. And now about a third of people on Medicare have it, and they are in for big surprises if they get sick because this is private health insurance companies, and they will mess with you. They will mess with you big time. But she was absolutely right. I think that, you know, they're trying to destroy Medicare. There's just no other way to, to say it. They've been trying to do it ever since, well, ever, ever since that speech of Reagan's that I played the first hour of the program. James in Denver. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? I just wanted to talk about the history of Christian progressivism in America and how the, the right, the radical right, has completely hijacked it. Sure. You know, you talk about history, and, you know, FDR was prolific in his embrace of the, you know, the Christian progressive movement in this country, yes. which is a movement that goes back before the Civil War and was instrumental in, in many groundbreaking progressive legislations that were just stunning. Oh, One, it goes back before the Revolutionary War. Look at the Quakers. Right. Yeah, exactly. The Quakers abolitionism, you know, mm-hmm. was hugely influenced by it. One I was thinking about, too, that your listeners might not have heard of is the 1921 Russian Famine Relief Act, which I know is exotic, but, you know, it was the, the Soviet Union, the population of the Soviet Union essentially was going to starve because the whites controlled the farming areas and because the Bolsheviks had kind of ruined the food supply. And it was a movement inside the Senate led by Christian progressives. It was $20 million dollars. But at the time, that amounted to almost 3% of the entire federal budget. Mm-hmm. And the food was transported to Petrograd and saved 10 to 15 million Russian people. Wow. And it was, you know, you can read all about it. And it, it's, it's something that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a history teacher. It's something that I bring up to people because, like you said, Americans are so ignorant of their own history and what this country has done. Yes. And, you know, the, when you look tragically and, and, you know, you were bringing up the cross of iron, Eisenhower is right. I mean, you know, you look at the proportion of money that we are spending on WIC or international aid or famine relief, and it's, it's tiny. It's tiny compared to what we're spending on everything else, corporate bailouts, the military, et cetera. And we're spending but more and we're spending more supporting the fossil fuel industry than we are su- supporting the Pentagon. I mean, I came across that statistic this week. I thought it was $300 billion. It turns out it's closer to $800 billion. Right, exactly. And, you know, we're subsidizing the banking industry. But you know, the, the country has a long, long tradition of, of Christian progressivism. And it, it's important for progressives, you know, leaders and commentators to realize that because, you know, there are, those people are still out there. And to be honest, mm-hmm. they just don't vote because the Republicans have made it out, made out this false reality that somehow it's like, well, if you're Christian, you're going to vote for the Republicans. And if you're, you know, not a Christian, you vote I'm for I'm not the sure that's you know? true, James. What is the denomination? Um, they've got the word Christ in their name that that first embraced gay marriage before there was gay marriage and and even ran ads on television that showed a gay couple being welcomed in their church. 
Oh, I don't know. I want to say it was the, um, the Church of Christ. Uh, yeah, it may, it may have been Church of Christ. But that denomination is solid and stable. And the United Methodists, actually, which is the church I, I grew up in, the church my mother went to, my family went to, that's, you know, one of those churches is the one that's getting all this publicity because they've got the nativity scene where little baby Jesus is in a cage and then, you know, Mary and Joseph are in a separate cage and the, and the Magi are in a third cage and they're all looking at the baby like, oh, we can't get to that baby. A meta to Trump's caging children policy. It's definitely not been completely successful, but it's definitely something that they've been trying to do for for 30 years since Reagan. Yeah, uh, progressive and, Christians, you mean, by, by they. Yeah, prog- yeah. yeah, right, yeah. I mean, I mean the, the Republicans, you know, the, the Republicans have been trying to hijack Christianity in America since Reagan. I mean, I, sure. I wrote a, a whole book about this, about, about the last kind of 30 years of American politics called Trickle-Down Poverty, <laughs> about how the right basically cherry-picks the Bible, and they put tons of money behind certain guys like Jerry Falwell or Jimmy Williams that support arch-conservative policies. And part of it is to just scare off the Christian progressive movement and put it on the ground. But it's important to realize that that is a huge part of our history. Yeah, it is. Very well said, James. And, and uh, what the title of your book? Is it available in bookstores and things? It's on Amazon.com. It's just called Trickle Down Poverty. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. I will, I will check it out. Good talking yeah, with you. you. I, I appreciate it. Rich in Cedro Woolley, Washington. Hey, Rich, what's up? Hey, Tom. Yeah, listening to these folks who always say, or try to compare socialism in Venezuela to, you know, American socialism, it's just ridiculous because we really have nothing in common. Venezuela is like an oil country that's been yeah, it's a petro state. And used in the petro state. It's been abused by people like the Cokes. Now, but also, on the other hand, it's as ridiculous as you or, your eyes saying, uh, well, malignant capitalism is like Somalia, because we've got nothing in common with Somalia. The country that I point people to, to say, look, from unregulated capitalism to malignant capitalism to oligarchy, I say, look at Russia since George H.W. Bush sick the Chicago boys on them. Yep. Supply-side economics in Russia, it went from... You know, and they let it go. Deregulated capitalism, boom. Now we got oligarchy in what? Two decades. Yep. Two yeah. and a half decades. It's not, by the way, just Russia. The same thing happened in, in a number of the former Soviet states. It's happening in Hungary right now. And they've Orban has basically shut down the free press and, and put toadies in for the entire judiciary and rewrote the Constitution. It's happening in Poland right now with Duda. I don't know about, you know, some of the other countries like Albania, you know, some of the other foreign Soviet states, but this shock doctrine capitalism, to quote Naomi Klein, and she wrote a book about it, is what it, one of the things it does is it does lead to oligarchy. You're absolutely right, Rich. And that's here now. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do right here. I agree. I, and that's been the, the project of the Koch brothers and all their front groups for years is try to establish oligarchy here in the United States. Rich, thanks for the call. Brett in Seattle. Hey, Brett. I think our differences are just too great. I don't see us convincing them of anything and them changing our minds. And I think we're like a bad marriage that can only end in divorce. And, and that's what I see for our country is I, a separation. I, I just don't see us being able to come together anymore. We, we like hate each other. And I don't see a solution. It, and even if we get rid of Trump, impeach him or vote him out, uh, like Bill Maher said on his last show, the Republicans, his supporters aren't going anywhere. It's going to still, you're going to have 63 million people who support him. And no matter what happens to him, you know, you're going to have that conflict. And I really don't see a a positive solution. I'm I'm really scared. And and you were talking about in your book, the gun situation in this Mm -hmm. country and the violence and and that's what I see in the future for our country, and I'm really, really afraid. Uh, I am very concerned about these things too, Con. But that said, you know, we've been through really, really rough times in the in the in the past in this country. We fought a civil war. 
um, basically a war against oligarchy. And I think that we're on the edge of another war against oligarchy. What you are seeing on the Republican side right now are, in many cases, decent Americans whose minds have been poisoned. And they've been poisoned by oligarchs. They've been poisoned by Rupert Murdoch, a billionaire media owner, and by the Koch brothers and, and, and Mercer and Adelson and some of these other right-wing billionaires through their front organizations and, and things like that, and through right-wing hate radio. And that is oligarchy. And we've got to start taking apart oligarchy in this country. We've got to bring back uh, at least some sanity to, to uh, you know, money in politics. And frankly, if the Democrats can just win the next election by, by their fingernails, and I think the polling shows that there's a very good chance of that, actually, that we can take the Senate and that we can take the White House in the next election. Trump is that bad. Yes, he's got hardcore support among about 30% of America and fairly good support among another 10%. So he's got around 40% who will vote for him. That's not enough to win. And unless the, the Democrats really step in it, really blow it big time, I think that there's a really good chance. And then the, if the Democrats do take that power, step one has to be to overturn the Supreme Court decisions that say that money is free speech and that corporations are people. And if they can pull that off, then I think that there's tremendous hope for this country. If they don't pull that off, I think we're in for a protracted cold war in this country, which is what we're experiencing right now. I don't know that it'll turn into a hot war because this is no longer regional. I mean, in the South, the plantation owners, uh, several thousand plantation owners in the South basically created an oligarchy in the Southern states. The Southern states were no longer democratic. They were, literally were not functioning as democracies. They were functioning as oligarchies, whereas the Northern states were still functioning as democracies. So we had a regional war between the Democrats, the Democratic Republicans in the North, and the oligarchs in the South, and we defeated oligarchy in 1865. Now, we have not defeated oligarchy. And oligarchy began to rear its ugly head again in the 1970s. The oligarchs took the White House in 1980. They've taken much of our media and much of our political system. But it's not regional. It's national. It's all over the country. And so I don't see, you know, a shooting war or civil war kind of scenario. But this Cold War thing is very corrosive to America. The most we can do is, is I think, be as awake and aware as possible and get all of our friends out to vote. We've got to do this at the, at the ballot box in November. Con, thanks for the call. Nick in Chicago. Hey, Nick, what's up? Ah, fantastic. Uh, this is my Nostra Nickus prediction, kind of okay. like Nostradamus. <laughs> now that you're finally seeing this global oligarchy, uh, from this perspective, it shouldn't be so hard to imagine who is truly behind 9-11 using al-Qaeda as like the Oswald patsy and using Trump as the money laundering and funneling patsy, starting at the top with Putin and the rest of the oligarchs, taking care of that. And this basically is the real reason he can't reveal his taxes because that little thread will start unwinding that whole conspiracy. What do you think well, of I think, that? I think if he reveals his taxes, we'll discover that he is basically owned by a bunch of oligarchs, probably some of them Russian, but I'm, I'm guessing oligarchs from other places. Jared Kushner couldn't even get a security clearance because he's owned by Middle Eastern oligarchs. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think that Putin was behind 9-11, though, but I do think that, uh, and, and, and I don't even think, I mean, it's been, I think it's well documented that Saudi money was behind 9-11. Uh, you know, there it was Saudis who did 9-11. It was a Saudi who planned 9-11. And we've never held Saudi Arabia responsible for that in any meaningful way. And just like, just like we're not holding them responsible for Khashoggi. So thanks a lot for the call. Adrian in Woodacre, California. Hey, Adrian, what's on your mind? Hi there. Hey. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for just the great work that you do. I've been listening to you and following you for many, many years, as well as various progressive platforms on Pacifica, free speech, from Amy Goodman to David Pakman and all of the above. Thank you. I really look to uh, these platforms to uh, you know understand the current events. And one thing that's been a little bit puzzling is this was seeming to me conflict between, on some people's minds, you know, what Julia Assange did for or not for us. And I was wondering, you know, if you could help out, you know, uh, help me understand. Did you see uh, you uh, know, Jeff Skull's movie about Julian Assange? 
I did not. Okay, there's a there's a movie. It was in the theaters about three or four years ago about Julian Assange. That's probably out there somewhere. You know, Netflix, Hulu, whatever. It's really worth watching, Adrian. It was a pretty solid documentary. I think he's a very troubled guy who tried to do something really good and got caught up in stuff that was really bad. I mean, that's my bottom line assessment of Julian Assange. And the bad corrupted him. But he grew up in a cult. I mean, a very bizarre cult where everybody bleached their hair blonde and pulled out their facial hairs and things. And it's just, it's very strange. You'll have to check out the, uh, the thing. Adrian, thanks a lot for the call. And thank you for being with us today. And please share progressive media with your friends. Get out there, get active, tag You've your been listening. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.